You are listening to Collector's Edition on the Bright Archives podcast. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm David Bernabo. Today we are interviewing Ryan McLennan. Hi, my name is Ryan McLennan. Uh, I'm the owner of Bottom Feeder Books in Point Breeze, Pittsburgh. Bottom Feeder Books is near the Reynolds Street Business District, but tucked away on a residential side street. The building that houses the bookstore is lightly modernist. It's clad in wood shingle siding and features big rectangular windows that let light into the entryway. And before it was a bookstore, it was a hair salon, and then later, I think it was a pet store. The striking checkerboard pattern on the floor is a remnant from those days. And it's a split level, so Ryan usually has a few featured books or posters on view when you enter, and then when you climb a handful of stairs, you'll see the main collection. And for a bookstore, it feels intentionally minimal and uncluttered. There's a simple table in the middle, and then the perimeter is lined with shelves. There's plenty of space to move around. And in addition to the store having a minimal feel, there's a reverence for good book design. You'll often see Grove Press or New Directions editions from the 1950s and 60s featured on the wall shelving. Modernist literature, poetry, philosophy, and film criticism are on the higher shelves, and the bottom shelves contain oversized art books. And there's also a gallery space in the back of the store that hosts monthly exhibitions and screenings by local artists. There's also regular book releases, readings, and other events in the store at least a few times a month. And often your visit will be soundtracked by a post-punk or jazz record. So here on the Collector's Edition series, we talk with collectors to learn what motivates all of us to bring objects into our lives and how possessions shape our lived experiences. Sitting in the store, Ryan tells us a little bit about his personal book collection and the collection of books that makes up the inventory at Bottom Feeder. So why books? What prompted you to open the store? I have been collecting books for 20 or so years. I worked at a shop in Richmond, Virginia called Chop Suey Books. They're no longer there, but that is where I learned all of this. I learned book appraisal, um, how to identify editions, and, you know, aside from the books in general as objects, I, I just learned a lot about art and literature and film and all of those things, which is the focus here at the store. So do you look for anything in particular when you're collecting books? Uh, I do. I have a focus on art, artist monographs. Uh, those are the books that I have most of at home uh, and that I do look for for the shop. But any modern literature, classic American literature, international film, theater, poetry, all of that, I'm always always looking for. Because th- th- those are my interests and that's what I feel like I know most about. So that's why I want to have these things in the shop because... I want to be able to talk about them or I want to be able to recommend something. And, you know, I mean, there's plenty of stuff in here that I'm I'm certainly not an expert at. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at any of this stuff. It's just I know a little bit about a lot of things, which is, I think, important for running a bookstore. Uh, And then the things that I don't know really anything about, I I don't seek out or really, really have here in the shop. Yeah. How many volumes do you have in the shop? 
approximately? Approximately, I actually I don't really know. I'd say I would say a few thousand books are in here, um, and there's storage space on the back side of those shelves. So between two and three thousand seems about right. Yeah, I think so. If I had to guess, yeah. I would say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what's the um, most unique item you have? I had a really great book on uh, Pasolini, the filmmaker and writer. That was a hard hard for me to let go of. It was hard for me to bring it here, and then when I sold it, it was. It was bittersweet for sure but that was um i've never seen another one like it i wasn't aware of its existence when i found it it took a little back and forth in my mind of like no i think i want to keep this but then you know it's it is like that with a lot of things that i do own it's not that often that i bring things in here anymore from from my home i'm sure i will again at some point and there are some one-of-a-kind type things but uh there's a lot that even if it's rare hard to come by I'll, I'll find it again. And that's, that's fun. That's fun for me, you know? So why do I feel like I need to hold on to this forever? Why, you know, why couldn't I part with it? And I also need to sell things to make money to stay in business. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise there won't be a shop anymore. So, you know, what makes you collect? Like personally, I get the store part. You need to sell, sell books to keep it open and make a living and all that. But uh-huh. Yeah, you mentioned, why do I need to hold on to this thing forever? What causes that impulse? I don't really know. I, before, I mean, <laughs> it's I, a valid I answer. It, yeah, I, I, I've just, when I was younger, when I was a kid, there were certain, there were toys and things that I would collect, not, not really thinking about being a collector or things like that. But something, I mean, I can remember, remember I don't know if you remember, there are those little pink rubber figures, they were called muscle men, I think. Wait, do you remember Muscle Men? I do. These are little, maybe like an inch tall, kind of pink rubber figures. Mattel made them. They started in 1986 to 1988. I vividly remember two characters. One was all blocks, like a block person, and one had six arms. And it's one of those toys as a kid where you don't know how they entered the house, but you played with them. And then they were gone one day. Is that, is that a common? I don't know if that's common for other people. I had a lot of toys that appeared and disappeared. So I just looked this up, and it looks like muscle stands for millions of unusual small creatures lurking everywhere. I love a good acronym toy. <laughs> I love those. And I would line them up. You know, I would, I would arrange them in certain ways and just, like, have them on a shelf in my room. So I, I, that's the beginning of the path to this. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I did that for a while when I was a kid. Uh, I went through a period, I guess, when I, when I was a little older, later in high school and in college, where I just I didn't really want to have anything, really. Well, I guess, that's not entirely true. I guess I, guess I had a pretty, pretty sparse living situation, but I, I would collect records. I was really, I collected punk and hardcore records. And, you know, if you're a record collector at all and the record comes out and there's a few different colors, uh, vinyl and things like that. I was, I was always really nerdy about that. So all of these things lead up to, again, to where I am now and working at the bookstore in Richmond. That's what started me with books really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're curious about why people collect things, right? So I think for some folks there are like memories attached to certain objects. Mm-hmm. And so they'll carry them through their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but other people, not at all. They're like, I just like the look of it. 
Yeah. So which which side are you on? Uh, both. I mean, I, I love the look of things. That, that's a huge thing about the store of like of books that I do seek out to have. It is because of the particular edition or the design, the artwork on the dust jacket, things like that. They're beautiful, which is why I do collect things. And it's, I mean, a lot of books that I have, I've got tons of books at home that I've never read and I'm sure I never will. But I think that's what it is, is that it, I want it. I want it there just in case. It's about that, and it is about about the book as as an object. And I could just download a ton of things, and they could be there if I want it. But it's that's it's it's different, you know. Same and same thing with DVDs and movies. I've got a closet with probably a thousand DVDs in it. I've I've watched a lot of them, but there's certainly a lot that I haven't. But I take comfort in it being there just in case. I guess. Yeah. 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 So you're not a like an ebook person no i've never i've never done that before (laughs) (laughs) what is it about the object that because a lot of people will say that you know it's the information is the same so what is it about the object that makes it special nothing so we're you know get rid of all the physical items we're just gonna have digital books yeah maybe the digital one won't be there one (laughs) won't be there one day i don't know we rely a lot on everything like that and everything that streams online and all of these services and platforms and things like that but when i have it at home like i it's it's there yeah with a physical item it's like that there's a a history attached to it right mm-hmm. this book was printed at a specific time and place it's yeah. been owned by all of these other people yeah you know it has its own history in yeah. addition to what's written in it and that as an object makes it special you know it's it that item is unique yeah. there might be tons of other you know copies but that item is still unique because you know it's had its own history definitely it's fun at least for me to see books from bottom feeder enter my own collection oh would you call yourself a book collector i wouldn't call myself a book collector but i do have about 400 books maybe 15 of them are from bottom feeder I usually buy books as some form of research for my own artistic practice. So thinking about when I started making dance work, contemporary dance pieces, I read every book about dance that the Carnegie Library had, then I bought a few of my favorite books, things that I thought I might read again. And Bottom Feeder has been great for that purpose, especially as I restart my art practice. So I picked up some great art books about artists like Neo Rausch. Fishley and Weiss, and Robert Smithson. These are artists that make work that I really don't think I could make. Like I couldn't make things on that scale or with those intentions. But reading about their process becomes really inspiring. And then I get other ideas. So I assume other people collect for research purposes like this. Like all the books I have serve some type of active function. But as we're talking with Ryan, I'm slowly realizing that people collect for all sorts of reasons and not just the reasons that I collect. You're an artist also and do painting. Mm-hmm. Is there a practical aspect of what you collect? Is it, is it research? Yes and no. I do paint. I still do paint. I used to paint uh, a lot more and I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily say that I collected, but I, I did have lots of books for research or reference material and things like that, which I did not really care for so much and they would be in the studio and they would get paint on them or I would just I would rip pages out of them and, and things like that and I used to make lots of paintings that had animals in them so I needed a reference for 
animals. Animals. <laughs> uh, but I, but there were certain things that I would read also that I didn't, I didn't care so much about the books as I did with other books that I had. So the books that I have and would say in my collection, no, I don't think that they are really so much any sort of reference or research for my artwork anymore. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you acquire things now and then how you decide what goes in your collection versus the store. Anywhere that you can really think that you might be able to find a book, look everywhere from other booksellers to thrift stores, library sales, things like that. Uh, the internet, online, other other booksellers, you know, selling either on eBay or Abe and things like that. Um, and now since I've had the shop open, people bring books to me or I will make house calls, things like that. It doesn't, does not happen every day. Uh, thankfully really, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it seems to be happening on a pretty good, fairly regular basis to, to keep the store stocked. And I love going to look at other people's stuff, <laughs> going into someone else's home and seeing, seeing how they have their books in their house and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's, a I do get a lot of pleasure out of doing that. So hardly a day goes by that I don't find a book somewhere. And since I've opened the store, I have not kept very many things for myself. There's so many things that I want to have in the shop. There's so many things that I need to have in the shop. You know, I, I hold back and realize also that it's like, I don't, I don't need this. I don't, you know, I don't need this. And I mean, and I have so many books already when I was ready to open the store, I had so many books and that was because I wasn't really holding myself back. And I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to do this. So I was always, always buying books in the thought of like, well, I know I'm going to do this one day. So like, I, I have to have books if I want to open a bookstore. So there were certain things that, you know, along the way, I was like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I really need this, but I know that it's, it's something that would be great. Like if I found this in a, in a bookstore, it'd be really exciting. Since the store has been open, I've I can't say how many, but maybe I've kept like 20 books or something in the past year, over a year. So that's compared to, yeah. <laughs> compared to what I used to be it's like. It's, yeah. <laughs> how big's your home collection roughly? <laughs> it's, it's not that I do have, uh, I'd, I'd say I probably have a couple thousand books at home at most. I think that's, that's reasonable. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that bad. <laughs> and also what's good about that is that it's, most of them are in one room and it is, you know, controlled and now and since we've moved to pittsburgh and we have a house we bought a house before that i moved around a lot we moved around a lot so collecting books it was just like oh well just they'll just go wherever they fit or wherever but now it's i don't i don't really have interest in just having books all over all over my home you know I, it's just it's it's all silly now that i'm now that i'm talking about it say it, it just sounds silly of like just buy <laughs> all these, all of these thoughts and concerns about buying stuff. It's uh it is my pastime, my collection and my hobby and my passion and things like that. But yes, our depends what backdrop you set it against, I guess. I guess. So. So in our conversation with Ryan, one idea that came up was that bookstores like Bottom Feeder are places where arts communities of the past can be preserved in a sense. Mm, that's an interesting idea. What do you mean? So say you wanted to do research on New York in the 1950s, specifically the scenes that were kind of grouped under the term New York school. 
This could be modernist dance, contemporary composition at that time, chance-based composition. It could be abstract expressionism. If you look in Bottom Feeder, you will find publications by Grove Press and the Evergreen Review documenting the emergence of that kind of modernist literature, Samuel Beckett, Eugene Ionesco. Uh, you might find that those people were friends with Frank O'Hara, who wrote art reviews that might be collected in publications. Those art reviews might review shows by Joan Mitchell, Willem de Kooning, Jackson Pollock. And all of those artists have more contemporary publications through exhibition catalogs or a publisher like Phaedon that provide a retrospective of their careers and document where they started in the 1940s and 50s and so on. So you have decades of publications that provide multiple, multiple viewpoints into the ideas that germinated in the 1950s and expanded over the 20th century. So you could go to a WorldCat or a library catalog or Google or Amazon and find tons of books on these topics, but they're going to be dispersed you know, across different libraries, different locations, especially if the books are hard to find. So places like Bottom Feeder become an opportunity to time travel. It's like a time capsule. Yeah. On any given afternoon, you can travel back in time to experience a published version of whatever life was like at that time. We asked Ryan what he hopes people experience when they come to his store. I want somebody to come here and find something that's special and that, like, you know, they're drawn to it and they want it. They want to have it because it is, it looks, it's in great shape and it's their favorite book, but they've just never found this edition of it, you know? I've done that a couple of times in the store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So if you're in Pittsburgh, feel free to drop by Bottom Feeder Books in the Point Breeze neighborhood. I'm open Wednesday through Sunday, 12 to 6. You might see one of us there. Thanks for listening to the Bright Archives podcast. This episode was produced by Catherine and Dave, and the sound design and the music was also made by Dave and the band Waterer. If you'd like to hear more about these topics, we'd love to hear from you. We do read the comments and reviews and use them to improve and make changes. If you'd like to hear us cover a particular topic related to meaningful archives, just let us know. See you next time.